0: Hello and welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast. My name is Toby Miller and my guest today is...
1: Mark Kuckelberg.
0: It's great to meet you, Mark. Thank you very much for joining us today. Great. And my opening question is to ask you, what's dynamizing you, preoccupying you, troubling you, interesting you as we speak?
1: Yeah, I've been... Uh... Been very interested in the topic of democracy, and and the reason why is that um, that we we see uh, tendencies towards its opposite everywhere in the world, um, also here in in Europe, uh, thinking about Italy, for example, Sweden, uh, Hungary, and so on. Um, so I um, so I was got quite worried about those kind of tendencies towards. More uh, right populist and authoritarian um, regimes, and and I thought you know I've been busy with with AI and um, other automation technologies for a while, and I thought like okay I I, I want to do something about this like you know how could um, AI possibly contribute to this to those tendencies and and um, and if it does and when it does can we what can we do about it. Um, And that was the the simple um, sort of starting point for my book.
0: This is uh, Prof. Mark's uh, new book, which I've been fortunate enough to be able to read nearly all of, Why AI Undermines Democracy and What to Do About It. And it, it has cautionary tales about artificial intelligence without being doom saying i would think that's and right. uh, it that's interesting because if we look at the whole history of communications technologies there has always been since really the spread of the laser revolution a an anxiety about the negative impact of these things whether it's daily newspapers or cinema or radio through to ai that oscillates with the positive impact that's supposed to come, that's meant to be about democratisation or efficiency or fun or whatever. I think, Lou, you elude that rather graceless antinomy in the book, mm. And you're looking at it, as you say, because of, in a sense, this other concern, which is about threats to democracy. And one of the things you explain to us in the book, and it would be great if you could explain it now, is why democracy... Is not just voting, mm-hmm. because, for instance, yeah, that's yeah. the line that Donald J. Trump uses, right? Voting is democracy, nothing else.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. And and so, if we see voting, uh, sorry, if we see democracy just as voting, um, then of course right populists, they, you know, they they um, seem entirely legitimate because they are elected Um, you know in uh, in the 30s hitler was elected actually Um, so uh, I think that that shows also there must be something wrong with this and um, what I think is wrong is that that it doesn't really unpack all the things that are needed for for a good democracy for a healthy democracy to work Um, and those things have been you know um mentioned since ancient times um an important an important uh, part of it of this sort of more richer conception of democracy that i I rely on in the book um is that um that citizens do not only vote but also participate in the decision making right so they uh, they think about things, they discuss things with one another, they deliberate and participate and that that's uh, that's a much richer ideal because then you you have a legitimacy that that is really based on people publicly discussing about issues um Something else that I mentioned more towards the later part of the book is is education um if if you say like yeah, citizens should decide about the our future we should decide our future um then then i think what you need for that is people who um know what's going on and who um who have some idea of where they want to go and and this really presupposes that that citizens are educated well and unfortunately that's not the case today um uh, certainly not in those countries where uh where these more populist and authoritarian movements um, take root. Um, so, so that that's very important uh, to, to see that. And and you know, in, I go back to the history um, where I where I find this more republican ideal of democracy, um, an idea where citizens deliberate, citizens also contribute to the common good. So the idea is not only like. To ask, what does the state do for me? But also, what can I do, uh, for my society, community? Um, that th- I, th- I know it's not a very fashionable idea or it's, it's, uh, it's not a very easy idea because then we have to specify, you know, what is then that common good that we should contribute to? Um, and, and who should do what and so on. But, but the basic idea is there. So that, that's, I think like, you know, in a nutshell, the more richer ideal of democracy that I say in the book, like let, let's rather go for that one and then see how, how, um, you know, AI might either undermine this or support it.
0: And could you tell us a bit about those two possibilities or probabilities, how artificial intelligence could undermine that more participatory model of democracy or how it could energize it?
1: Mm yeah the undermining is has to do with uh, the sort of more authoritarian use of artificial intelligence, where the idea would be to um to rely on it um, in a way like you know not asking the people but just on, uh, relying on on statistical um, knowledge and um yeah I, I think that since Plato there is this idea like, oh we shouldn't trust the people and we should just you know have experts rule um he he talked about cybernetics actually but cybernetics in the sense of steering a ship and he said like you, this should be done by people who know what they're doing not by <laughs> by anyone and similarly he argued we should uh have the state run by by experts guardians um and and i think today there is a, a sort of temptation to do that too to say like you know, let let the experts deal with things. Um we had a lot of that during the pandemic. Um perhaps it was justified to some extent then. Um, but we should really think if it's justified in general. And I think we, we, we want democracy, we don't want technocracy and, and rule by experts. Um but it's not an easy question what exactly should be the relation between the you know expertise and democracy. Um what I also argue is that, that a problem with, uh, with AI is that a lot of users can go in directions that, that undermine fundamental values in our de- democracies as we know them since more or less the enlightenment. Um, for example, uh, freedom. Um, yeah, it's, it's so easy now in combination with all kind of surveillance, uh, sensors to, uh, follow people to know what they're doing, um, to predict behavior, to manipulate people. Um, there's also a danger that with with the power big tech is having now, um, yeah, that we we have very little democratic influence on on the technological future and therefore our common future. Um, uh, and and uh, when it comes to democracy, I. Um, I point to to Hannah Arendt, who in her book *The Origins of Totalitarianism* argued that um, yeah, totalitarianism thrives on this, um, you know, it not being very sure, people not being sure whether something is true or not, uh, and 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 we are creating with AI this this infosphere where where we don't really know anymore what's true or not, and and so there, there I see a lot of those kind of dangers too, the kind of knowledge environment that gets undermined um, by AI.
0: Thinking about authority, which is one of the concepts you were using there, and you thought you do engage with authoritarian and totalitarian risks. I turned to Weber and his three-pronged model of authority, right? That For listeners who may not have read Weber, by the way, the victim of a victim of, in a sense, the precursor to Mm. COVID-19. Always worth reading. I'm reading him in translation, so this has to be acknowledged, where the three models that he comes up with are, you know, traditional. This is the voice of authority in this village or in this patriarchal arrangement. Charismatic, the person who is extraordinary in her or his communication skills. And the sort of legal, rational one. And that makes me think of an Anthony Giddens example of what liberal modernity is when he says, I'm writing, or worse to be effective, I'm writing this in an aeroplane. I don't have the engineering, the aeronautic knowledge to understand how it takes off, how it keeps going and how it lands. But I know there is a system in place for educating people who wish to learn how to do that and to regulate how that happens and that this is a a, therefore a rational agreement on my part to hand over responsibility for my life to this kind of authority in a way that's different from these other forms where the traditional form says you cannot apply to learn how to be x or y Authority, because Mm. you weren't born to it, or the charismatic, where it's all about who can bullshit the loudest, demagoguery. So it it seems to me that there's there's a problem when the rational legal model of authority is not in any sense exposed to participatory tendencies. And I think that that's one way, one other way of talking about what you're getting at in the book. Do I have that right?
1: Yes, I think there is a there's this kind of problem when when um the decisions about what kind of systems we rely on rely on is taken by other people or by a small number of people and where there's no participation in that. So um it is true that it's perfectly rational to to trust some systems maybe, but I think it's also important to make sure that citizens have a say in what kind of technological systems um are you know are we in in the hands of uh, what kind of systems do we want to trust um and that's with ai uh, a problem right no one asks you like do you want um ai to fly your airplane for example to take up that example again um, but it happens all the time and, and pilots do very little these days when it comes to steering. Uh, so it's, it's very much a, a kind of cybernetic system. Um, so, so it, it's important there that b- before there is that moment of trust that, that those decisions are made democratically. Um, and uh, so that's why in the, in the second half of the book, I um, I go more in that direction and say, like, we need that deliberation and participation. Um, and we don't need it after the systems already exist, but we need it at the moment when they're developed. Um, and that's a crucial point because nowadays the, the emphasis is a lot on regulation in the sense of um, we have that system that thing called AI, and then we're going to, oh my God, we have to, uh, now we have to protect ourselves, right? Um, But if we could have democratic influence on what kind of systems we're developing, how they work, what kind of values are embedded in them, ethical values, political values, um, then we would have that sort of legitimacy that's now lacking. Um, What we have now is that a, a small number of people... Some tech CEOs and investors decide uh, about what kind of, you know, what technologies we will use in the next uh, five and ten years, Um, and I I think that's deeply problematic.
0: I'm thinking here, Prof, of some of the models of institutional review boards, as they're called in the United States, or ethics committees, as they're called elsewhere, for the development, trialing, and application of pharmaceutical drugs and not just within university contexts but corporations engaging in forms of regulation that are urged upon them by the state it's frequently the case that philosophers are on those committees right mm-hmm. normally not sociologists anthropologists historians but philosophers you're a philosopher mm-hmm. what's the what are the special qualities that you folks can bring to that kind of deliberation that affects the way in which major public and private policy decisions are taken? What's the thing that marks philosophy out as endowed to do this?
1: Mm. Well, I think philosophers uh, don't have any uh, special uh, uh, authority when it comes to deciding which direction, ethically and politically, we should go. I think they, just like other people, should talk with others about this. Uh, however, they um, they can have, um, if, if all is good and well, they, uh, if they have the experience to engage with these practical issues, they can have some sense, um, more than others, about what kind of ethical issues Will likely emerge again and again. Uh, they can help to clarify arguments in a the debate. Um, they can stimulate discussion about what do we mean with a particular concept. What do we mean by by safety when it comes to drug safety, for example, uh, or, or aviation safety, for that matter. Um, so, so I think philosophers can play an assistive role there. Uh, together also with social scientists who might have specific methods um, for letting people deliberate in in an effective way, in a a good way that takes into account um, some representation, some stakeholders, and so on. Um, So so I think different disciplines can contribute here, but uh, philosophers definitely have a role to play. Um, I also think in principle a i can help by by giving some uh information um that might be otherwise difficult to look up for people quickly um a i can summarize positions a i can even uh help to build a consensus um by by you know by by f- making clearer the different positions in a debate um based on online data for example. Um, so, so I think um, definitely we need the humans, human moderators there, um, but we we can also use the the information technologies that we have uh, today. So I'm I'm not against AI. I'm I'm open to uh, also constructive uses of AI.
0: No, and that's absolutely clear in in the book, and I think that's one of its many strengths: avoiding this binary obsession. That is either condemning or celebrating the technology. And uh, it's interesting for me because I can remember 40 years ago, artificial intelligence researchers telling me that my life was about to be transformed 100%. (laughs) Well, by their efforts. Uh, One of the other things that you do in the book that I think is extremely useful and is not generally done in discussions of new technologies of communication and culture, is to talk about a renaissance and the Enlightenment, two historically European ideas and ideals and periodizations. Could you explain to us why you call for a new renaissance and what role the Enlightenment has to play for us?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So what we what we have today is this idea that we can um, have a democracy without like a broad knowledge basis and without like some values we share and without um, yeah some kind of civic education as it used to be called.
0: And I, <laughs> I think
1: what um, uh, I know that you know very unusual to talk about it, but um, but what what i like about um the the kind of humanism that that's flourished in the renaissance and and uh, the enlightenment version later is that um there's the idea that we need to share knowledge we need to share some values also and uh use the technologies that we have the in the information and communication technologies that we have to um, build communities of learning among, you know, what we would now call experts, but also have a broader um, sort of educational project. And um, I think if we really are serious about democracy, you know, not about voting, but if we want, if we really want democracy, then we need to make sure that there is something that we share. We need to make sure that um, we we build up this kind of mutual learning opportunities uh, and these public spaces where people listen to one another. Um, and so, in the in the in the Renaissance, it used to be like with the the technology of book printing, and people started reading. And then you have the 19th century after the Enlightenment, the the novel, and and so you would have a much wider circle of people who read and talk about things together. And um, I think we could try to use the technologies that we now have available, the digital technologies, including AI, um, for creating, again, communities of learning, for creating a sort of shared knowledge base so we can talk to uh, to one another again. Otherwise we live each in, in our own bubble uh, and that's a problem for a democracy uh, because then we, we can't shape this, this common world anymore.
0: I've got a a cry for help, a creed de coeur that I'm going to give you. Mm-hmm. I'm teaching at a university in Spain where I live. My students are lower middle class, working class. They know nothing about the Spanish Civil War because it's silenced in schooling, in, in public schooling in Spain, from what I've been told. Mm. They do not read the news in any form. The only information they get, for example, about Gaza comes from TikTok or Instagram. Mm. In class, they spend much of their time looking at influences on the issues like makeup and clothing, mm. and betting on gambling on sports events, I've had real trouble getting through to them. And mm. what I've tried to do is to talk about the importance of democracy, as mm. broadly understood, including things like democratizing influences, mm. etc. And I can't get their attention. Mm. Now, it's not your responsibility to solve my problem, but do you have some suggestions about how to infuse young people with the democracy that obviously matters a lot to you, as it does to me and probably most listening to this discussion?
1: Yeah, I think this is uh, what you're bringing up here is a a huge challenge, of course. Um, I think what I see in it is definitely this role of the the current way that we um, design and use the digital technologies um, does create these different um, bubbles where people get entertained, where people can do whatever they want to do, that's fine, but where there's very little channels to... um, talk to one another about the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so if we could redesign the technologies in such a way that it would encourage that, um, and also if we could have people uh, with good education um, playing that role of influencers and showing their peers that there is more to um, you know, society, and, and and we can do more in society. We can do something democratic. Um, then I, I think that that would be a way to, to to deal with that, but it presupposes this kind of the idea that that technology is no longer isolated in some kind of technical realm, but is is part of what politics should be about. Um, and it also presupposes, again, um, an education from the beginning. Also, educating the teachers, of course, um, to to pay more attention to to those kind of um, civic education aspects and talk with with young people about, like, you know, what kind of place do you want this city to be with this, uh, what kind of society, uh, what would be a good way forward. Um,
0: I think you've just given me a great
1: help, a great
0: hint, because I am so disinclined to speak in utopic terms (laughs) that I fail to ask that crucial set of questions you offer at the end of your reply. But I think that is a way forward, along with pointing to the things that they and we take for granted that are the result of democratic struggle. Mm -hmm. The socialization of health. The socialization of schooling, all sorts of elements of their daily lives that have come about in many cases through democratic struggle.
1: Yeah. Yes, absolutely, and we often forget that, right? We we forget, we take it for granted, um, and and we we don't think that we still have to keep struggling to have those uh, public goods still. Um, yeah, I mean, utopia, I'm, I'm of course also, uh, you know, I, uh, before I studied philosophy, I studied political science. I'm very well aware of the, you know, the, the, all the, the potential problems with utopia. Um, but I think we, we can still, we need to find like out of necessity almost, we need to find a non-utopian thinking about the future, uh, that is still forward looking and still, um, can have some constructive and optimistic sort of vision of where we want to go. Um, and I, I think there uh, teachers and journalists and uh, people who write books can, can help also with this. Um, you know, instead of just complaining about how bad the world is, uh, that we <laughs> sort of also dare to put forward some positive visions.
0: I think you and I should teach a civics education class as you as you imply it doesn't sound very sexy but one of the great things you you offer at the end of the book is a summary of your proposals for policymakers. i would like to see another one added if you do a second edition which is for teachers Mm,
1: right Um,
0: but i think it's great that you have that i think innovative appendix because that sort of summary for important people is often at the beginning of reports mm. and so on i think it's much better placed at the end but i wonder if you could run through for us your wishes for policy and you know what that executive summary is meant to do
1: mm. yeah there's there's of course a, a huge demand nowadays uh, for advice on Uh, policy for ai um there's like many countries are busy with it um at national level there is uh, at at various supranational levels like the the eu for example in europe or or the um uh, the un are busy with with policy making in this area and and so there's a, a huge need for advice and um i think based on what i've said in the book um i I do say that at the end uh, okay if, if if all this is true, then we we need of course uh, more support for this deliberative um direction um also, I propose a new kind of um institution that would sit between those democratically elected bodies and and the experts um you know whether they're in corporate world or in academia. But to make sure there is a sort of more permanent way of dealing with this, what I, what I see today as a problem is that we on a very ad hoc basis, like, "Oops, there's a new technology now. we all need to think about this." Uh, and then suddenly there are council like advisory councils uh, being being um, uh, born, and, and, and it takes years for them to come up with with some um, advice so what i want is a is a sort of permanent institution that is much faster uh you know in in playing when something happens and that already has some expertise that that cuts across um these different uh, existing institutions and 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 uh different places of knowledge that also relates to my point about interdisciplinarity I think so we need in terms of policy an education that um, doesn't from the start cut things into different boxes what what we now have is is for you know children of thirteen years old already get a sort of academic frame of mind um they uh, academic in the bad sense of the world they they they, they are taught different subjects Uh, what they're not taught is for example like here is a problem how can we using of course different disciplines how can we then deal with that how can we solve problems together Um, instead we, we sort of prepare them for university and university is the same thing boxes different disciplines. So we need interdisciplinarity and transdisciplinarity from the start, from the school. Um, So that that requires a very different kind of education uh, policy than we have now. So these are just two examples, I think, of more concrete things that could come out of this. Hmm.
0: Prof, Mark, I've got a couple more questions for you, and then I'd like to throw it over to you so you can add to or subtract from any of what we've said. Does that sound okay? Okay. So the first question is to ask about your methods. How do you find stuff out? What are the questions you ask and how do you go about doing research?
1: Mm. Yeah, I usually start with some intuition that, uh, that there is a problem somehow uh and um like in this case with this ai and authoritarianism this was my starting point um and as a as a philosopher i'm very aware that i'm not the first one who uh who is worried about a particular topic and that there is this whole history of philosophy history of thinking uh behind that so um I usually um start researching you know what did other people say about this already um often already long ago. I like this kind of a uh, jump into the history and then back all the way to contemporary tech for example um so i I enjoy that um and then i I try to think like yeah okay, how you know given that yeah you know, x y z set is uh what can we do with this for today what can we um how can we make this productive for uh thinking about our contemporary problem that we started from um and that helps me a lot to go beyond the the hypes and the the doom scenarios um and I, I am very happy that today we have um, good tools to to do that. I mean, before there was Google Search, for example, it was much harder to um, to do one's research. One had to spend weeks and weeks in the library, which I still did for my PhD, for example, uh, just to get you know some literature on topics. Now everything is faster, more efficient. Uh, so I, I use the tools of today. I think many researchers are already also using ChatGPT. Um, I, I, I think it's good to use the, the tools we have to uh, to yeah uh, find more information and and build that knowledge base to then think critically. Like, okay, how how can we use now what's there to um, to move forward.
0: One of the things that I've found very useful about going back to philosophy again and again is that all the classic stuff is out of copyright, so it's not hard to get at electronically or expensive. So reading that Thomas More's Utopia warns against working people betting on football is fantastic when I'm trying to write about moral panics to do with things like popular pastimes,
1: right? Absolutely. But yeah. um,
0: I absolutely agree with you that Plato is incredibly interesting on the idea of the tools of wickedness eventually bringing massive ecological disaster, to use our language, mm. really interesting. Mm. And there's so much in all kinds of different philosophy from back, 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 back that is really valuable, and mm. gets you thinking so Absolutely. taking the problems of today as you're doing and then looking at existing knowledge doesn't just mean going back five years it can mean going back hundreds if not thousands and of course a lot of the things that you're advocating in terms of enlightenment values can also be found in the pluriversal commitments of indigenous philosophies mm. in the global south i
1: think yeah Absolutely. So I'm I, I'm open, of course, for sort of um, more non-colonial direction, and uh, I think we can we can be inspired by uh, these values and principles that have been um, nurtured in a European context. But we 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 definitely have to also learn from from indigenous wisdoms and and uh, all uh, all the you know treasures of wisdom that are there in in other parts of the world um and i th- i think also different parts of the world have to do their own exercise right so so going back into the past and see what they, what can be used from the past to think of think about the present um so i i, I yeah it's it's uh it's it's not limited to uh, the exercise that that i have done for sure and my and
0: last question be. before handing over to you mark is what's the next thing for you? What's inside that intuitive thinking that you referred to a moment ago right now? Can you see a world when you're not talking about AI?
1: You mean for my personal uh, further research or? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, uh, of course I'm, I, what I like about talking about technologies is that it, Gets you. um, It parachutes you directly into today's issues, and um, it it is also um, you know a very fast moving field uh, where there will be always new challenges. So uh, for people doing ethics of technology, uh, you never get bored. Um, But yeah, I think there's there's a huge need for. Thinking about technology doesn't have to be AI only, and I think that perhaps that we we focus a bit too much on on only AI these days. Um, it's it's maybe a bit too fashionable, um, but there will be other technologies, and I think it's good to, you know, from my side, I call myself a philosopher of technology. I I do not only think about AI, but I think it's good to have to have a broader framework to think about this plate of technology in our society and uh and 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 asking the the ancient questions of the good life again um for today for for any kind of new technology um, and, and
0: inter earlier i should say you've published books on ro- on robotics on cyborgs a whole raft of things so
1: right right yeah so i'll, I'll keep doing that and um and hope to contribute and stimulate people to think about these issues. Is
0: there something you'd like to add or subtract from what we've discussed?
1: Um, no, I think, well, th- there is an, an issue that I did mention it, but towards the end of the book I talk a lot about the um, the common good. And that's just like civic education is something that people might find problematic to think about that. Um, But for me, it's important, right? And so... But on the other hand, I think what we've said might already be enough to get people to think about things. And then if if they read the book, they will find it. And they they will... um, they you know it will be up to them to engage with the topic or not. Um uh, but of course that, that notion of the common good belongs to that richer sort of republican thinking that I defend. Um, yeah.
0: Well Mark Kockelberg, many, many thanks. I learn a lot always from reading your work and I deeply appreciate your insights from today. Thank you very much.